Welcome to Sentient Planet. I think it was only two meters away. A six or seven meter king cobra was hanging in the bushes there. Uh, that for me was pure serendipity. A king cobra only a couple of meters away from your face is quite something. So I took a few steps back immediately before I took some pictures and really observed the animal. That principle of serendipity is just simply amazing. Hi, I'm your host, Susan Woodward. We're lightening things up a little this week as I chat with the Dutch-born wildlife photographer, Mark Stoop. Mark is living and working on the island, city, state and nation of Singapore, where he gets to indulge his passion for observing and photographing wetlands, especially their bird and reptilian life forms. Are reptiles sentient? A growing body of scientific evidence says yes, and of course. These fascinating creatures, with their famous dinosaur cousins, experience all sorts of emotions. Perhaps even curiosity, which is what Mark gleaned in the eye of a green-crested lizard that spotted him in Sungai Bulo Wetland Reserve in 2019. Mark captured a just incredible, charismatic photo of this little guy, an image that's been downloaded more than 14,000 times. One of the downloaders was me. So I hope you enjoy today's interview with Mark. He tells us how he came to take the photo that speaks for all species as the icon for the Sentient Planet podcast. He shares a ton of thoughtful tips for those of you who love to take nature photos. And if you didn't know much about what it's like to live amongst monkeys, wild boar, cobra snakes, and 400 species of birds in beautiful, biodiverse Singapore, well, you'll have a good idea after listening. Mark Stoop, welcome to Sentient Planet. Thanks so much for joining us today. Good morning, Susan, and uh, thanks for having me. This is a really fun interview for me to do because you've been like an extended member of our little Sentient Planet podcast team now since we launched earlier this summer. And should I tell the story or do you want to tell the story about what your involvement has been? First things first, thank you. You let me know over email a while ago that I'm a bit of that kind of extra member to the team, which <laughs> makes me feel very special. Yeah, I think how it all happened is that you just stumbled into one of my pictures. I publish a picture here and there on Unsplash. You reached out to me over email saying, you know, I love this picture. Can I use the uh, lizard that's appearing in the picture to um, give my new podcast? I'm creating a, a bit of an identity. And yeah, I love that. And you responded so quickly, I remember, and I was just delighted because you never know when you're reaching out to somebody you know, through the internet, if you're ever going to hear back from folks. So that was really exciting. Um, yeah, you know, I came across that image. I uh, was thinking about what the iconography of the podcast should be. And I was just kind of in the question of that. And I really just started doing some Google searches on sentience and sentient animals, sentient life. And for some reason, that image of the reptile that you had taken over there in Singapore was one of the top images that came across in the searches that I was doing. And he just, or she just, I think it's a guy, we'll have to come back to that, 
um, <laughs> it jumped out of the screen at me and I thought to myself, why can't the animal who's going to give a voice to all the other species on the planet be a really humble little reptile like that? So yeah. that, that was the intrigue for me. And then just following that through and reaching out to you to see if um, that would be something that was okay with you. And then we worked with our graphic designer and we started drawing some stuff up. And the longer that we've worked on Sentient Planet and had him kind of hovering over our studio and in all of our branding, um, the more I've fallen in love with him. So thank you, Mark, for um, agreeing to let us use your fantastic image. Is it a male or a female, do you think? Uh, to be very honest, uh, I would have to kind of look at the uh, cloaca area of a reptile to identify. <laughs> Some species are dysmorphic and you can't tell if they're a male or female. I would uh, say it's a male, probably also because of the, the dark uh, ring around the eye, which I think is more common in males than in females, but I'm not too sure about that. So I couldn't tell you if it's a male or a female, but let's go for a strong little boy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that, that works for me. In the basic research I did online, there was nothing definitive that I could see either, but something about that crest that is on the back of his neck there seemed to indicate that he's probably a male. So, okay, I love that. Let's go with little boy. Would you like to tell our listeners a little bit about your work as a photographer, as a nature photographer, and perhaps also the story of how you came to take that particular photograph? That's a good question. And nature photographer, I think, you know, 20 years ago, they were less available in terms of um, digital cameras. Uh, it was expensive. It was uh, difficult. It was complex and, and that kind of thing. And so a nature photographer always has had something very kind of cool around it and very kind of that's only for a few. Whereas, you know, we're living in 2021 and I'm very sure the pandemic accelerated that in people. But as nature photographers everywhere. I could call myself a nature photographer, yes, because I love to take a good picture of a good subject. But actually, I, I would more call myself a nature observer because I just love to simply observe a wildlife in its natural habitat. If I had to pick, I will always bring my binoculars and I will not necessarily always bring my, my cameras. Um, the nature photography uh, kind of uh, a title to give someone, yeah, it makes someone uh, very special. And I think you really have to get into photography and know everything, the ins and outs of your camera, the ins and outs of the sunlight, the ins and outs of how to capture reflection in an animal's eye, for example, to really stand out. Uh, again, if I look around in the park where I go today, half of the people walk around with a, a big lens, yeah, so... I'd rather call myself a, a nature observer. Uh, I did actually stumble during my run yesterday on a black spitting cobra, and I was like, I wish I had my camera here, but it was, yeah, it was during a, it was during a run. When I bumped into the animal we're talking about, right, the, the identity of your podcast. The green-crested lizard, I believe it's called. Yeah, it is. It is a native species. The numbers have declined in the past 30 to 40 years. I see it. Three, four times a year, actually. It's a lizard that actually lives high up in the trees as well. It's very well camouflaged, as you can see. It's super green. It really blends in with the leaves. But when I see it, I, I love to take a picture of it because it, yeah, it's, it's a bit special. The funny thing about the, the story of, and that's a golden rule straight away if you talk about photography, 
it is to never put your camera away, even though you think you're at the end and you may be a little frustrated because you didn't see anything or you may be a little frustrated because the setting on your camera was wrong when you took that, that, that picture of that animal. I had put my camera away, to be honest, and I was waiting for a taxi to pick me up to go home after a three-hour kind of walk in Sungo Bulo uh, wetlands here in Singapore. When that little man appeared uh, on the on the bridge next to the amenities, and this is what I think I learned during my time in Australia as well. You go on a big hike, you come back three hours later, and the animal you wanted to see <laughs> is sitting on the side mirror of your car, or it's sitting on you know, some kind of signpost. And this lizard did the same thing. And he looked at me and he came walking to me over the handrail of the bridge. And it was just phenomenal because at the other end, I could put my camera absolutely still to take, you know, a couple of shots of this, to me, very special animal. It's a stunning uh, creature. It's this one particularly is beautiful. Yeah, it can also turn brown when it's stressed. It only turns completely bright green, has a bit of blue, has that fantastic orange crest only when it's completely happy and healthy and all that kind of stuff, we can pretty much say it's a man because he's trying to show off, I think, as well. Yeah? And he looks a bit arrogant and he looks right into the lens with his eye, but his face is towards somewhere else. Exactly. Yeah, that just makes it, I think, a fantastic subject for that picture and a fantastic kind of angle for me to take the photo. We need to provide for um, Sentient Planet supporters the full image that we worked with to create the little um, logo, if you like, that we're currently using, because when you see him in all his grandeur, he really is striking a pose. There's no yeah. question. He's really got some attitude. And going back to what you mentioned about, you know, when you are technically taking a photo of an animal and you want it to do something like capturing a reflection in the animal's eye, I've really zoomed in on him and you can actually see the sunrise in his eye. Was that intentional or just luck there? I think that's luck. <laughs> I mean, you go through some pictures when you come back. I show some to friends or my partner or that kind of thing. And sometimes they pick a picture uh, that I don't believe is the good one. Uh, I thought it was that one. You've seen the animal in the wild and you think this is the best shot. This is uh, where I capture what the animal is doing or thinking or busy with at the moment. And then people typically pick another one and I follow what they say. I think two things are really important in a picture, apart from, you know, sunlight and kind of backgrounds. I love that reflection in the eye because it makes the eye come to life. And that reflection is typically white or whitish. And that can be with the smallest animals, tiny little birds or this kind of reptile. It's not much bigger than uh, including its tail half a meter. And I think the second thing is that the animal should really tell you a story. He is snacking for insects or whether he is more kind of protecting his area almost and saying, this space here is mine. What are you doing there uh, with your lens only that looks twice as big as I am? So they are two key things. Uh, a good picture tells a good story and, and the animals should definitely express something in, in, in their face. How long was your encounter with him? How long did you guys kind of meet and commune like that? A couple of minutes. This is a classic example of, wow, you know, three minutes felt like an hour kind of thing, but it literally is. Yeah, that's enough. Sometimes it's a few seconds. Let's help people understand the environment that you're talking about there, this park that you're talking about, this nature preserve. Can you um, give us a description of it or let us know what part of the country it's in and what kind of other sentient species are hanging around there? Yeah, so this is Sungai Bulo uh, wetlands in between Singapore and, and Malaysia. And 
it is a true wetlands area. And, you know, if there's one area that I think I love most, then it is actually wetlands. The wetlands are breeding grounds for fish. Wetlands are breeding grounds for reptile bird colonies visiting during particular seasons, etc. So they bring a massive value to our ecosystems. And it's very varied what you can bump into. You can walk around for three hours and don't see anything else than two birds. And you can walk around for 30 minutes and see 30 different species around you because it is so wild and there's so much happening there. Um, Yeah, it's a fantastic area here in Singapore, I would say. I love to go there in the very, very, very early morning uh, also because people typically go there at 9 a.m. and I would love to be kind of halfway through or uh, if not finished at 9 a.m. So I tend to go there 6, 6.30 in the morning together with the sunrise and some other nature lovers or filmers or photographers or researchers. It's the, the only true wetland that we have here. How big an area are we talking about and is it well protected by the government? Um, I think everyone in Singapore is very well protected by the government. <laughs> it's very positive here. Yes, Singaporeans take really good care of their national parks. They really take awesome care in making this city as green and as wild and as lush and as as the environment needs and as we need to survive. I think your other question was around the size. I think it could be the largest park to walk around actually in Singapore as well. Okay. So you've talked about birds and reptiles and a snake. Are there mammals in there as well? What other critters would we find? Yeah, good question, Susan. I think um, there's two mammals say here in Singapore, that if you visited Singapore, you'll pretty much have seen it. One is uh, the smooth-coated otter that has been absolutely thriving in the past couple of years. There's many of them. There's loads of them. I've seen them, uh, you know, passing the street or going into food centers, fishing people's ponds, etc. So it's a (laughs) bit of a love and hate relationship uh, between, I think, many people and and the otter. I absolutely uh, love it. Uh, there's another one with a love-hate relationship that's probably the long-tailed macaque. That's a monkey. I sometimes have it in my front or backyard. I need to make sure I close my window or else, you know, they come inside and they grab whatever they can, can steal from your house. They're very abundant as well. They hang around in most of our national parks, abundant in McRitchie, uh, Pulo Ubin, um, less so actually in that Sungai Bulo wetlands. As you can understand, you know, these animals particularly love to eat fruits. Um, and there's many fruits in the in the McRitchie um, uh, National Park here in Singapore. And then there's the more kind of elusive and shy animals that people barely get to see. You're lucky to spot one. It's the palm civet. It's the pangolin. Uh, it's the flying lemur. Um, they are kind of your more rare animals uh, that you that you can see. I mean, I see lemurs uh, every now and then hanging uh, against the tree but it's just a bit more difficult to see. And then there's the very rare species, such as your mouse deer and your sambar deer, who are very shy. There's only a few of them left. Hi, it's Susan. Sentient Planet amplifies the voices of the species with whom we share the Earth and the humans dedicated to their urgent defense and preservation. We're providing additional content at patreon.com slash sentientplanet. I hope you'll check it out and consider supporting us for a few dollars a month. Thank you.
It sounds like there is a lot of opportunity where you're living for the human non-human encounter to occur. Would you say that it's an accepted part of the culture over there and people generally really enjoy living close to nature and our non-human animal kin? I think so. I think so. And again, I love to take this pandemic as an example of how you can see uh, the interaction taking place between humans and, and wildlife. What I'm seeing here in Singapore is is so many love and passion for nature. And in the, in the past uh, 18 to 20 months, so many Facebook pages that pop up or Instagram accounts, people who want to share what they've seen as well. And you can just see that people pay respect to the animals, that people, you know, don't get too close to the animals. And if they do, uh, the social control on social media is fairly out there, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I think what, uh, what I've witnessed here is that a lot of people love to go into nature. Uh, yeah, and nature coming to us. It seems like one of the really positive things or outcomes of uh, this pretty desperate pandemic situation we're in is that it's brought more animals closer to where we are. So that's been really positive. And also people seem to have more time and inclination right now to rediscover nature. So they're also, you know, we're also going out more into nature. And and it's, it's so wonderful that people are finding delight in that. Although over here on the hiking trails, one of the things we notice is that it also has become very crowded. So there's a kind of double-edged sword that, that we need to wrestle with. I'm curious about how you got to be a photographer. I know that's not the only thing you're doing, but obviously that's a big passion and a hobby for you. How did your career or your passion for photography begin? So I moved from Holland, from the Netherlands to Australia about eight years ago. And I've always had a thing for uh, reptiles. I was the one in the family to wait for a year when we would go to the south of France, because there were these kind of, you know, the common wall skinks that would capture them I would look at them I would that would keep me very busy yeah my sister would be more the kind of rabbit girl or uh, you know holding a small uh, kind of rodent in a cage but I was more into these creatures that you wouldn't see walking around creeping around in in Holland right so I've always had it in me to have a passion for for reptiles and actually my passion for birds came later and both descendants from uh, you know our prehistoric friends dinosaur but yeah, so that really got me in, in, in Australia. I sometimes think about it. I can never go back to that day where I thought, okay, what well, now I am a, a bird watcher or a bird observer or whatever you want to call it. But it must have been, you know, that day when I first saw this sulfur crested a cockatoo or, or anything that makes Australia special and particularly Sydney stand out. Did you see that sulfur crested cockatoo first or hear it? Yeah, I think you hear it first, actually. Yeah, right. <laughs> they are loud. Yeah. They are loud. The rainbow lorikeets, same thing, right? Small, mm. but very uh, rainbow says it also. All the colors of the rainbow, so loud and so present. It must have been one of these that I saw. And then I think I just bought a book and boom, the, the next day I knew everything supposedly about birds. And uh, no, that, that didn't happen actually in a day, but... I think I started to notice anything around me that was flying and creeping and making making sounds I had never heard before, and then got into the photography. You know, buying buying a first proper lens, like a 500 millimeter lens, so you can do some zoom work. Taking some courses, 
going to the park, bump into uh, like-minded people, others who take photos and slowly picked it up from there. And then uh, there you go with your YouTubes and all these kind of channels and webinars. So for any geeky photography buffs that we have that are, that are listening here, can you share really quickly with us what kind of equipment you're using? Nikon. Nikon has been uh, my, my brand forever. I think you buy one and then you stick to it. You're a traditionalist old school guy. Yeah. So you're a marketing director as a day job. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and maybe how you blend or balance that work that you have to do with the passion that you have for photography? That all sits in the kind of the creative atmosphere, right? I think marketing is typically something that you do when you are a creative person in general. Yeah, It's either the writing or the visuals or the slogans or the campaigns or, you know, what resonates best with my audience. So in that role, there, there is a lot of creativity and there's passion about telling a story, basically. And the same thing is for photography. Actually, you don't want to tell a story. It's almost you want the animal to tell the story. And of course, you can influence that story by uh, saying that the animal is trying to say uh, X, Y, or Z. Uh, as a photographer, you know what happened before the photo and after the photo. So you can put it a bit more into perspective. Uh, but it is that moment that you're trying to capture and um, to engage an audience. And that is no different from a picture of a small lizard or a beautiful striking bird or a mammal versus you know, any kind of marketing campaign that you're running for your organization. You mentioned earlier that you have really been interested in animals, particularly reptiles, since, since boyhood. So you've been relating with animals really for a very long time, as long as you can probably remember. What is it about that that is so important to you? I guess, what are you experiencing when you are relating with those animals? Why is it important to you? And what, do, what are they teaching you? Or what are you learning from that experience? We've talked about mammals, birds, and reptiles pretty much until now, right? And I think your mammal, apart from the very shy and elusive ones, but your mammal is the one that you can pet, it's one that you can hold in your hands. Some of them are domesticated, but they can get very close to you and you've formed in a relationship between yourself and the mammal. And I think that birds are next to mammals are an animal that you can build that relationship with. I think we all know the, the parrot species uh, that sits in front of people's porches and they can even mimic your behavior or mimic your sounds. Uh, so there is a bond possible between uh, birds and humans. I think it's one of the longest standing bonds and relationships actually that there is. And then there is reptiles. And the thing about reptiles is I think the one that, you know, gets me the most when I get excited about a reptile is that they are pretty much unapproachable. It's not an animal that you can touch. It's not an animal that you can pet. It's not an animal that you should keep, uh, in my opinion. They are the ones that are rather walking away from human uh, and human interaction and coming towards you. And I think that's what it makes them so special. They have the most fantastic colors. They have the most fantastic systems in terms of surviving, thriving, breeding, nesting, protecting their, their environment, etc., which makes it so special. You can really look at a reptile sitting still for hours. And not everyone, I reckon, actually, but me, for me, it does. They get you in a tranquil kind of state of mind.
So clearly they hold a lot of intrigue for you, Mark, and you're probably a good person to ask then, what is the state of reptiles in the world? So in terms of um, how humans relate with them and our use and abuse of reptiles, as we have use and abuse of all sorts of different animals, can you give us a little bit of lay of the land? We touched a bit on social media before, which was in a very positive angle, right, where people share what they've seen happening in nature uh, with a lot of respect, leaving the animal untouched, don't make any sounds, don't throw anything so that the animal that you want to capture strikes a certain pose or so. But there's also, unfortunately, that spin of social media, which is more negative, where people walk around uh, with snakes or where they hold alligators or crocodiles, species that they absolutely shouldn't be holding in a captive uh, environment. As I said, you know, with reptiles, and I'm sure those people have a different opinion, but it's pretty much impossible to build a connection, to build a relationship, to build a bond with a reptile. Uh, why would you stick it in a one by one meter or two by two meter or even a five by five meter kind of cage uh, whilst that is not where it should naturally belong? That is something that people then love to show off on social media. I see all sorts of pictures of albino pythons, uh, very special, yes, to see, but does the animal need to go on a picture the whole day? I don't think so. It rather uh, hangs in a tree than around your neck. Hmm. Most of the listeners here are aware of the fact that there is a gigantic trade still in all of these animals. Sometimes at airports, they open up suitcases with 60, 160, 560 uh, species of uh, rare turtles or reptiles. Uh, half of them died during the trip, and the other half are probably going to be sold on black markets. If we look over the, the past, I don't know, five decades, maybe 100 years, uh, we did used to treat those animals a lot better than we do now. And funnily enough, we have more knowledge. One of the horrific images I've seen is of Asian markets where there are um, stores where you can buy a live turtle, not in a one by one square meter tank, but in a like one inch by one inch square piece of plastic as a keychain. Have you seen that? Yeah, I see that simply if you look at the West versus the East, particularly in the Asian region, there is a complete different relationship that people hold with with animals. Um, you know, sometimes they say particular animals or parts of animals will heal you if you have any kind of disease. Some of them, they say, bring luck. Some of them say they bring fortune. It's a complete different relationship that they have in the East versus the West. Yes, I have witnessed a tie rip or a piece of plastic around the turtle and it's being sold on the market for you to either keep or consume. They're used in soup. And that is unfortunately just what happened. These markets are actually gigantic. If you've never been to one, you can't imagine how large those markets are. Um, any organizations that you are a part of? Do you do any advocacy work, any activism for the animals that you feel a connection to? At the moment, I don't. When I was living in Amsterdam, I used to do some work for the Jane Goodall Institute. Hope, uh, people know who Jane Goodall is. Uh, she is <laughs> good uh, chance. She, she should be as famous as David Attenborough is, and still going strong. Yeah, they're still really going strong. I think for more than half a century, 
uh, they've been passionate about uh, animals, about nature, about ecosystems, about treating uh, wildlife well, you know, and creating planets that is sustainable for human beings as well as animals. So um, I've, I used to work for Jane Goodall Institute back in the day or do a bit of a project for her organization. I haven't been much involved into these kind of things ever since I moved around. I think what I'm trying to do is educate people that I bump into. I learn a lot, actually, from the people that I bump into myself as well. You've been quite complimentary in this conversation about Singapore and about kind of national efforts to um, study nature, to be respectful and thoughtful about the resources or sources of nature as we are using those as human beings. Do you know where that country sits in terms of animal and or nature rights? Look, I think Singapore sits right at the top. I mean, it's a small country, so there is a lot of opportunity to cover the whole country basically with researchers and research centers, etc. And two, as I'm, I'm sure people know, Singapore protects its country very well. It's impossible to get something in here. It's impossible to get something out here. Not only that, but there is heavy, heavy, heavy fines if you do something wrong to nature. I think if they spot you feeding a wild boar, the fine can be something like Mm. $10,000. If you feed a hornbill, which is something that you should absolutely never do, then you can get fines up to thousands of dollars. So um, I think Singapore scares people off with fines, possibly even jail sentences. But that is only for people with bad intentions, I reckon. So I love what they're doing. And I'm very sure that Singapore is absolutely up there when it comes down to protecting ecosystems and and protecting the planet, protecting the country. So strong borders and protections, that's really good to hear. Thanks for educating us on that. Mark, when you go out there to practice your craft in nature, what are you bringing of yourself and why are you bringing that intention into your work? That's a really good question. Um, Patience is absolutely critically important to bring to nature. You don't go to nature or you don't go to see the animal only if you stand still, only when you stop what you're doing, walking or looking around and just sit on a rock. Uh, The animals will actually show up and they will come to you, but it takes a bit of time. A good example is that um, when I was in Tasmania about five, six years ago, I wanted to see the platypus and I wanted to see it in its natural environment. There's a lake in Tasmania, Lake Sinclair, and there is where it is living. So I was there a week and it was my last morning. I woke up seven mornings in a row. I woke up at five o'clock, go to that lake around 5.30. I had been patient for six days. I hadn't seen it. And it was on that seventh day where I walked up the shore and literally right in front of me, a platypus was foraging. Hmm. So uh, you have to be patient you have to sit still and wait for the animal yeah that's so well put i think as humans we tend to do a lot of clutching and grabbing and taking and that's how we are and that's part of the reason we're in the mess we're in 
on the planet. And what I'm hearing you saying is that when you go out into nature, if you want an encounter with another species, that's the last thing you want to be bringing. You won't be successful. Yeah, absolutely. There's a second thing that I bring, and that is knowledge. You don't need to know everything about all the species in a particular park, but have a bit of basic knowledge really helps. It actually happened to me last Sunday. I was walking in uh, Thompson Nature Park. It's a beautiful park here in Singapore. It's a very small park, but with a lot of uh, different uh, species around. Now, I was almost on my way back home. I had spent two hours there. It took me another hour because on my way back to my bicycle, I bumped into something that I will probably never see again. Something in the bush attracted my attention. I turned around. I looked up and right above my head for three or four seconds, there was a gliding lizard going from the one tree to the other. A gliding lizard? <laughs> yeah, a gliding lizard. Wow. The Draco Sumatranus. It's a very remarkable animal, actually. Uh, it has a really large triangular cooler flag. Yeah, the male has that. It's very bright yellow. Uh, but it's a very funky animal uh, as well. It's actually in uh, in Planet Earth season two. David Attenborough spends some time filming that animal, and it was literally gliding from the one tree to the other right above my head. Nine out of ten people think it's a bird, or they can't really put in place what that weird-looking animal that was just flying above their head actually was. Yeah, it's having those uh, those kind of skin flaps on the side, fully stretched, fully out. It could look like a bee eater or any kind of bird. So yeah, for that thing to see, you need to have some knowledge. You need to be aware of which animals could be around you and are around you. Another thing, I don't know if you can bring it actually, but it is that kind of serendipity. It happened to me uh, about uh, one and a half years ago. I had bought a brand new camera. I went to Sungai Bulo uh, Wetlands Reserve and I was actually having the black-capped kingfisher on my target list. I've seen it somewhere in Southeast Asia, I think in Cambodia. But I just want to see it in Singapore as well. And I came off of the bridge uh, at the entrance. I turned to the left and I thought I saw it straight away. So I walked up to the shore of the riverbank and I couldn't find it. I was looking through it at the river. Could I see it? But more so, could I hear it? I got a bit to the left, and I think it was only two meters away. A six or seven meter king cobra was hanging in the bushes there. Uh, that for me was pure serendipity. A king cobra only a couple of meters away from your face is quite something. So I took a few steps back immediately before I took some pictures and really observed the animal. That principle of serendipity is just simply amazing. I didn't have that species in my mind at all. And there you go, in the first five minutes of my visit to the park with my new camera, 
there it was. So, you know, knowledge, patience, serendipity to me are absolutely key. And also a good thing to bring, I think, are your ears. Just listen. I love all of those tips that you're bringing to us. Thank you. All good things to think about and to practice. A point of clarification, uh, when you're talking about the cobra this time, is this the same encounter that you were talking about at the top of the interview? No, that was a different one. So you have the equatorial spitting cobra that I think we call or have defined as the black spitting cobra here in Singapore, and you have the king cobra. Okay. I've seen both, and yes, the black spitting cobra I bumped into uh, during my run yesterday. So you're out running, and you come across a cobra. I'm immediately thinking, what kind of environment are you living in exactly? So where I live, Susan, is uh, right next to the McRitchie Reservoir, next to a very big piece of nature here in the heart of Singapore. Uh, It is very residential. You're landed a property uh, landscape over here rather than the large kind of condominiums you see in in the city center. So it's a bit out there. I mentioned before, sometimes we've got monkeys in our gardens. Uh, We have a wild boar walking around the house. (laughs) So sometimes I go for a run at the end of the day and I use one of the the nature trails and then you bump into all kinds of things. But where I saw that cobra yesterday in the water drainage system, I don't know. I happened to look into one of the holes because something drew my attention and I couldn't believe my eyes. I was like, hang on, what's that? It's not a leaf or a stick sticking out. It is a black spitting cobra uh, sticking out. And it sat there beautifully with its head in the sun. It didn't notice me. I could look at it for three, four, five minutes before it disappeared back into into the drainage systems. It's It's these kind of areas where there is pretty much no one around. Cobras particularly are very shy animals. It was lucky. I was lucky to see it. So it sounds like you live really in a beautiful part of the planet, and it is still an incredible planet. Despite the decline in species that we're seeing, it's still full of life and many different types of species. And you've brought a lot of those uh, into our awareness today, and some that we don't normally think about. So I just really want to thank you for sharing all of that with us. Yeah, it's a pleasure, uh, Susan. Now, people think sometimes of Singapore as a concrete jungle, (laughs) but I'm not sure if that is true. I mean, there is about 400 species of birds here. Um, I lived in Australia before. There is about 900 or 1,000 there. That's only twice as much. Uh, And this country is like, you don't want to even compare it to the size of Australia. There's a lot of animals here. There's a lot of parks here. It's well protected. So yeah, it's it's a beautiful place. Well, you're a fantastic ambassador for the place, and I'm sure you're going to keep taking photographs and putting them out there into the world. If somebody wants to see some of your work, where should they go? Yeah, so I published some of my pictures on Unsplash. That's where I have my uh, my account. So it's unsplash.com um, slash Mark Stoop. Your work is beautiful, and we're really honoured to have you as an extended member of the Sendient Planet team. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Susan. It was great. For more about today's guest, as well as actions for animal justice that you can take, please visit sentientplanetpodcast.com and join our pod. We're also on socials at Sentient Planet Podcast. 
and you can support our work on Patreon. Susan Woodward is your host and content producer. Our social media and outreach manager is Ari Simmons. Sound engineering by Liam Wilkinson. Art direction by Janet Grimwade. Intro music, The Spaces Between by Scott Buckley. All interstitial music by Stella Drone. Our love to all beings. Thanks for listening.